I don't know if you were here last week. If you missed last week or maybe you missed it online, you can hop online and watch. Uh, Veronica Johnson was, was teaching last week, and she taught on uh, John 15 about remaining in Christ. Very, very powerful, very thoughtful. Um, I mean, I, as I listened to it, um, I was not surprised to hear from some folks in our church, though, who, uh, mostly men, who ended up doing some dishes this week. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Apparently, there's a bit of a revolt going on. In fact, one of the fellas that did some dishes uh, was our Don Talley. And, um, and Don, this is the, the first set of dishes he's cleaned, he said, he, by his, his own mouth in 20 years. <laughs> 20 years. Now, we're not embarrassing Don, but he is right back there. And he is, has no shame whatsoever. Zero shame. Uh, now, for, if you're one of the men in the church that ended up doing some dishes this week, I got a little tip from Don, okay, today. So here's what he said. He, he did a horrible job, and Chrissy said, you did it awful. You'll never do it again. So he's got another, he's got another 20 years. So he's off the hook. He's off the hook. So um, as Veronica taught in John 15, she's going into these words that Jesus talks about remaining in him and the vine. It's it's. Part of this discourse that Jesus gives as we're in Lent between Ash Wednesday and Easter, these chapters in John where Jesus is talking about life with the disciples. He's talking about what it means to follow him, what the way is, this is why we've called it that. And now as we get into the last couple of weeks before Easter, we're pushing toward uh, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus and the resurrection. And all of it begins to tie together. This Sunday, John 17 is where we are, and you can read all the gaps in between if you like. This is one of the most unique chapters in all of the Bible. It is the longest continuous prayer that we have recorded in Scripture from Jesus. It is, uh, if, if you have a red letter Bible, it is all red letters except for a couple words in there. And it is Jesus praying. Now, I, I don't know if you know much about the last week of Jesus' life, but even if you haven't been in church much, you probably know a few things about Jesus praying before the cross. And this is the context of this passage. It is the night before the crucifixion. He's with his disciples. And what you might know is from the other gospels, from, from Matthew or from Luke, that, that Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. Maybe you remember this. He takes the disciples with them and they're on their way and he's in the garden. He, some disciples kind of hang back and then Jesus takes three of them, Peter, James, and John, a little closer to the middle of the garden with him and Jesus begins to pray. He says, just, just watch with me and pray. And Jesus knows the arrest is about to happen. He knows all of these things are imminent, the cross and all that. But he, he prays, then they, he comes back and the three are falling, yeah, really all of them, but Peter, James, and John in particular have fallen asleep. And he's like, can't you, can't you stay awake a little bit? And he goes off and prays. And all of this is in the other gospels, not in John. And I got a feeling that when John wrote John 17 and recorded this prayer, it was his way of saying, you know, I mean, I didn't sleep. You know, I... I heard all of it. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. That's just my little fiction when it comes to John. But, you know, John has this sense of God's love for him that we should each walk with. And as John records this very lengthy, very long, poetic, incredibly moving prayer of Jesus, it is the one time that I know of recorded in Scripture where Jesus prays for me specifically and you specifically and I'll show you how that comes together the beginning of the chapter starts like this 
After saying all these things, and you can read all those things, they come before this verse, of course, but it's some pretty powerful, moving stuff and some of the most memorable statements from the Gospel of John. But after saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has what? It's come. It's time. It's going to happen, and it's drawing near, and time is short, and all of the tension that's in Jerusalem around the, the, the political, religious tensions about to bubble up, and things are just going to get kicked off in the next couple of hours, and Jesus says, it's time now, and so he begins to pray. When he prays throughout this entire chapter, and again, we've, we've divided things up into verses and chapters, it, en- it encompasses all of John 17, he prays for himself. He prays for the disciples that are with him, and then he prays for us. When he is praying for himself, he includes this little verse, and there's a few verses before it, but he says, now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. Do you remember how the Gospel of John started? We, we talked about it uh, several weeks ago, and you've slept a lot since then, so I'll remind you. And it, it is John's way of bringing this idea full circle. The very beginning of the Gospel of John begins this way. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And John describes this before creation moment where the Trinity is all together and nothing has been made yet. And now, at the end of Jesus' life, John brings it back home to the same place, full circle. And he says, bring me into the, the glory. It's a great word. The word in the Greek is the, is the word doxa, D-O-X-A, which we even sang when we began our service, a little song we call, what do we call it? The doxology. It's why, where we get this, this word from the Greek. And it means that Jesus is saying, Lord, I, I, when people look at me, I want them to see you and I will reflect your glory. And he's gonna describe all of that for the disciples and for us. And he's gonna tell us what that looks like or what it means. And it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but it means one very specific thing to Jesus. So I want people to see your glory. I want to reflect who you are. In other words, there's a lot of distracting things in the world, but when people see me, what I want them to see is, is something of who God is. I bear his image. I was made in his image. I carry his name. I want to walk with him and know him. I want to be like him. And more than anything, there's a lot of things I want in this life, but more than anything, what God wants us to want is for people to get a glimpse of who God is when they see us with other people and out in the world and in your job, with your friends, your family, your kids. And that's what Jesus is saying. Bring me back into that glory, that doxa. And so you sang those words, praise God, from whom all blessings flow. May the glory be reflected in that. And so in the middle of the prayer, Jesus prays for the disciples. In fact, this, this verse, verse uh, that, that reference is wrong, it's further down to 17. Jesus is praying for all of us, but he's gonna transition by saying this, I'm not just praying for the disciples. When Jesus prays for the disciples that are with him, uh, he's praying for safety. He's praying for them. They're about to experience persecution. They're going to start the church. There's a lot of things that he prays for. But then he says, now I'm also going to pray for and say the words in yellow with me. Are you ready? All who will ever believe in me through their message. Who does that include? Who does that include? Does it include you? 
Yeah, yeah. It includes Mark Havercade, who just raised his hand in the back. It includes, <laughs> it includes a lot of people, doesn't it? Lots of people. Who does it not include? Now, this is where our minds are tempted to go, to this place. Who does it include? And who does it not include? Does it include people who used to believe but don't believe anymore? Does it include people who, I don't know, like Christmas and Easter Christians? Does it include them? Does it include, I don't know, you, you have to answer that question yourself. Who does it include and who does it not include? If you've been around church life very long, this is the, the pastime or the hobby or even the religious pursuit of most people who are a part of a religious life. We want to know the answer to one very, what we feel like is very important question and sometimes all-encompassing depending on the church you attend. Who's in and who's out? We want to know the answer to that question. And the reason we want to know the answer to that question is because we have some pretty um, self-interested thoughts about that. We want to know, do, do we think the right things to be in? Do we believe the right way? Do we, is there something that is about me or my ideology or theology or the church I go to or something that I've been taught that I still cling to? Is there something that might keep me out? Because you've all attended a church that, oh, at some point or another, they make a list of some things that might keep you out and you want to be sure you're not on that list or you don't do those things or you don't think those ways. And Jesus says, I'm going to pray for all who will ever believe in me through their message. And he's going to pray a very specific thing. Now, if Jesus was going to pray and he came up to me and said, hey, uh, Philip, I, I think he'll call me Philip probably. Um, <laughs> what, what would you like for me to pray for? I, I want to pray for you. And I would think, I mean, I, of all the prayers that if they're in line at heaven, and Jesus has a chance to, you know, pray for me. I'm thinking his probably go to the front of the line. Wouldn't you guess that his would be maybe more important than mine or yours? Not really, but that's how we think. And so I would think, oh, I, I, I can think of all kinds of things that I would want you to pray for. Jesus, in this moment, before he faces the cross, has in mind me and you and all who will ever believe. And I don't think it was this collective thing. Jesus is infinite. His love is infinite. His mind is infinite. I believe he prayed these things I'm about to talk to you about in, with you specifically in mind, your name, your story, your life, every bit of it, collectively in his heart and mind. And this is what he prays. He says, in fact, let's just all say the whole verse together. You ready? I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. This, this prayer that Jesus prays is unique, and it is specific, and it is single in its purpose when he's praying for me and he's praying for you. And I cannot think of a more powerful, more catalytic prayer 
than what Jesus prays. I cannot think of a more relevant prayer that he would pray in our culture today, in our culture socially, spiritually, theologically, in every way. When Jesus prays, I pray that they will all be one. He's praying for me. He's praying for you. He's praying for the kids at church camp when you were there and they all raised their hands and went forward. And he's praying for the people who once believed and maybe don't believe anymore or decided that they don't want anything to do with anybody that thinks like that. He's praying for them. In fact, whatever list you have in mind that Jesus is praying for those people, who Jesus prayed for is bigger than your list. I'm almost certain of it. And he prays that they will all be one. And when he does, he gives us a picture of what that looks like. And the unity that he's describing can only be seen in what you and I call, the Bible doesn't call it this, but we call it this, the Trinity. So the Trinity, you know what the Trinity is, right? It's Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And there's three, but we know that we worship one God, but there's three of them, but there's one. And so if you've ever tried to explain that to anybody, you know, good luck with that. And Jesus sounds like he is just repeating himself and going back over the things he's already said when even he describes it. He says, we are one, you are in me, I am in you, and, and we're all one. He's describing what an old married couple looks like when they celebrate their 50th anniversary. And they both think, you know what, I don't even know what I think anymore. I think I just think what you think. And she says, well, you know, it's about time. It took 50 years <laughs> to get there. That's finally, finally we're where we're supposed to be. And they finish each other's, you know, sentences and sandwiches, right? I mean, this is... This is what it means. This is the Trinity. I don't know where one begins and the other ends. I mean, I know there's some things that the Holy Spirit, you know, Jesus says the Holy Spirit does this, but the Holy Spirit is part of the triune, the God that's represented by the Trinity. And they're so enmeshed, they're so collectively, comprehensively one that Jesus says, this is so hard for us independent thinkers, Jesus says that's how we are to be. And he prays that we would be like that. And he says that if, if you are, if you are like that, and if you understand what it means to be one, you know what's going to happen? And this is um, unbelievable to me. He says this, when this happens, the world will believe that you sent me. I don't know if you've ever asked God for a sign. I have. You know, the, if you're an Old Testament reader, it's the, it's the fleece that you lay out. It's the, it's the thing when you're in this moment, you say, Lord, if you're real, then just, you know, and you fill in the blank and, and you say, God, I, I need to know that you're real. If you will, you know, give me this job, make her say yes, cure this disease. All of us have been at a place in our life occasionally where we think, you know what, Lord, I just need to know. I need some proof. I need a sign. And that was true in the Old Testament. It's true during Jesus' time. It's true all time, all people, all places. Everybody wants a sign. And when Jesus says, this is how you'll know God is real, he doesn't point to a miracle or a windfall. 
He doesn't point to your life going well. He doesn't point to a healing. He doesn't point to any of that. He says, you will know God is real when you see people love each other in unique and powerful ways in spite of who they are. That's how you'll know God is real. That is no small thing. And it doesn't happen very often today. He even describes it in a deeper way, a more powerful way. Just a few verses later, he says this. This is my prayer, he says. May they experience, say those three words with me, such perfect unity. And this is what will happen. The world will know that you sent me. That's the first little miracle that happens, that that people will actually believe in the existence of a higher power, a God, an all-powerful, all-knowing God that is real. They'll believe it, but not only that, that's just the first one. The second one is this. Not only that, they will know, and this is even more profound, that you love them as much as you love me. I don't know what kind of friction is in your life right now or where the conflicts are or where the hurt is or where the anxiety is or where the, you know, the potholes are and the speed bumps, but I'm sure there are plenty. There are for me too, and I imagine there are for you. And if you've lived long enough to know that that's just a part of how life is, you notice that they're, you know, Seasons where they're less frequent and some seasons when it feels like it just rains and pours. But I know this, that whatever you're feeling, whatever you're going through, the friction and difficulties in our life stem from either me or you not being fully aware and fully convinced that God loves us as much as he loves Jesus. In other words, it is the unconditional nature of God that allows you to live in peace without fear, knowing that God's love is enough for everything you will ever experience or endure. The anxiety and the friction in our relationships, the relational pain comes from not fully believing this. It's because we've experienced relationships where, well, we haven't been one. We haven't had unity. We haven't had a sense of unconditional love from the people that we walk with that know God, and yet we treat others or others treat us in such a way that seems to appear as if God's love is limited or conditional or if then But Jesus says, if you can live in such perfect unity, not only will the world know that there's a God, that's that's just, that's first. But they will know that the love for them, well, that's how Paul describes it. It's as deep, wide, tall, the breadth of it. What's more than you can ever ask or imagine. That's what it is. So that's what Jesus prays for. And so if you search online and look for how many churches there are in Castle Rock, 
um, you can look. And uh, I, in fact, our friend uh, Steve Johnson and uh, another guy in town has created a website for people who are looking for churches in Castle Rock. And we're, we're on that list. Thank goodness. I'd be a bummer if we weren't, Steve. Um, <laughs> But you can find all, and, and you know, there's, there's a couple uh, extraneous ones that maybe wouldn't be on the list, kind of, you know, I mean, will we even call them churches really, Steve? I mean, it's one of those. And um, my tongue's in my cheek. And so there are like 50, 59 churches in Castle Rock. And you can go to this website and look at it, and it's, it's pretty incredible. So the, the, when you think about, I mean, you know, I mean, we're, it's not like we're a metropolitan area, right? I mean, we're a, we're a nice big town is what we are. And when we think about Jesus' prayer of such perfect unity, well, when I look at this list of churches, I can tell you why they are different than the other church that's on the list. It's, it's listed by maybe a person's name in history or something in history or some theology or an ideology or a very specific practice that they engage in. And it's, well, it's the reason why you're at this church because you don't go to that other church anymore, Right? And so when we wonder about what Jesus said and what he prayed for, such perfect unity, then you have to ask the question, how are we doing? And when Jesus prayed this, I don't think that he didn't know about Luther and the Reformation. Of course he knew that. When Jesus prayed this, I don't think he didn't know about the great schism or the, the, the beginning of the Anglican church or the divide from the Catholic. I don't think... Jesus was unaware that this would happen with people and churches. He knew, he could see it, he understood all of it. So it can't be about the churches that Jesus is praying that we've completely miserably failed at. He must be talking about something else. When Jesus is telling us that he's praying that we would all be one, he's talking about my relationship with you and your relationship with the people that are in your circle and the people that you will meet on Tuesday, the folks that are in your family, the people that will join your place of employment over the next three weeks that you haven't even met yet. He's talking about everybody that you have any engagement and interaction with. And he says, I want them to come to such perfect unity. See, we are the answer to this prayer. How we live and how we love. But we miss it. We miss it badly. We miss it poorly. And we miss it because we misunderstand what unity is. And so let's take it from the theoretical and the, the, the lofty words of John 17 and give it some, some teeth and some detail before we take communion together. We miss it because we think that unity means that we agree. But unity is not agreement at all. We think unity means that you think like I think or we believe the same things. And because we believe the same things, then we can you know, worship together, walk together, be in life together. Because, you know, we don't have to argue about those big ideas that we understand we all are on the same page about. Playing from the same sheet of music, they say. But that's not what unity means. It doesn't mean that at all. Every now and then I'll go walking over Miller Park with uh, one of my old University of Kentucky t-shirts on or something, you know, and I'm all the way out here in Colorado, you know, I especially do this in March until they've lost and then I put them away for the year. <laughs> and so I'll go walking in Miller and I'll have this thing. It's got a UK emblem or a wildcat on or something like that. And every now and then somebody will say, Hey, Kentucky, I grew up in Kentucky. And I, all of a sudden I feel like, ah, oh, this is great. I mean, I'm on, this, I'm on the ways from Kentucky. I found a friend. 
you know, I'll say, that's, that's incredible. Where, where did you grow up? That's amazing. And they'll say, I grew up in Louisville. And I want to think, oh, you're probably a Cardinals fan. This is, <laughs> this is awful. Now I don't even like you. And so we went, we went from, you know, didn't know each other, long lost friends. We're probably related, right? Because we're from Kentucky. <laughs> To now, I can't believe you support that ridiculous university that's 90 miles from where I grew up. It's what we do with sports. It's what we do with theology and ideologies. If you required agreement for unity, how short would your list be of the people that you could walk in unity with? What do you believe? Well, I believe there's a God. Well, me too. Oh, we found a brother, found a sister. This is good. What kind of church? And then five minutes later, it devolves into an argument about what's true and what isn't. And, and all of a sudden, what could have been a moment of oneness becomes a moment of division. And the picture I painted was about God stuff, but you could substitute anything, whether it's politics or the school board or the HOA decisions or it doesn't matter Jesus prayed for unity we think that unity means we've run off all the people that disagree with us unity means something very very different here's what it means unity or oneness happens when people choose love over theology when people choose love over ideology and when people choose love over beliefs and even convictions, that's when unity happens. Now, that doesn't mean that these things aren't important. They're terribly important. They're incredibly important, and they matter. What you believe, your theology, your ideology, I hope you wrestle with that stuff. I hope it keeps you up at night. I hope you read. I hope you study. I hope you have discussions with people. I hope you really try to wrestle to the ground the things that make up your understanding of who God is, how he feels about you, and how he works in the world. Uh, that's very important because it determines what you value and where you spend your money and your time. And it, it matters in an infinite number of ways. But if you place any of these things ahead of love, then you have run across the grain of Jesus's prayer and Jesus prayed that you wouldn't do that. He prayed that you would be one and that you would experience such perfect unity. Of course, these things matter, but they pale in comparison to love. Now, we all have different definitions of love. And so this is where it gets a little more specific because love in the context of the New Testament and Jesus' teaching means something incredibly specific. It's not a, an emotion. It's not even a feeling. It can be all those things, but that's not what Jesus is describing when he uses the word love. He's describing with the Greek word agape a sense that I want what is best for you and I will work tangibly and practically to see that come to pass. And I'll do so in the context of our relationship, my resources, what I have, my time and my energy. My love can be seen. It's, it's literally something that can be visible between us. And I'll do so with the attention that I give. I'll do so with how we interact 
And whether I place these things ahead of love or not, I'm going to place them way down the list. In fact, when I interact with you, you may not even know what some of these things are. I'm going to be so careful about that because I am ultimately concerned that you know that love exists between us. How long, how many conversations do you have to have with somebody for them to be sure of the love that you share with them and for them before you can share an ideology that competes against theirs? How long? A long time for some of us. And a long time for many others in our culture. But I will go to that length. Oh, you're hiding your beliefs? No, 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 I'm elevating love. You're pushing your ideology aside? Absolutely not. Love wins the day, every day. And so I've decided that the answer to Jesus' prayer, well, it's best expressed in this word. Love is humility. That's what love is. And you see this all through the Gospels. That's why Jesus washed feet. It's why Jesus allowed this woman who everyone knew was a, you know, well-accomplished sinner to wash his feet in the presence of Pharisees and seemingly righteous people. It's why Jesus would have a conversation with a woman at a well in the Gospel of John, even though it risks his own reputation. That's what humility looks like. That's what humility is. It's what agape is. It means that I'm more interested in you than you knowing what I think. That's what humility is. Probably three years ago now, it was well before the, the pandemic, we, we were seeing new folks here at Castle Oaks and we're all wondering, well, that's, well, that's different, that's new. You know, we had a prayer team as, as we do now, praying and thinking about the church and interceding on behalf of the church body. And they asked me one day, one Sunday, they said, hey, what, what should we be praying for? And I thought, you know, with new folks, we really want them to understand what, you know, what we're about, who we are as a church. Pray for unity. That's why I said, I had John 17 in mind. Pray for unity. You should pray for unity. And so they began to pray for unity that day. That day, Don Talley, you know who Don is, right? Dishwashing fame, Don. Okay, just making sure we're on the same page. Don, Don joined them for, to pray. And, and when he joined them to pray, um, they said, you know, we're praying for unity. And Don said something I'll never forget. One of the most profound thoughts about unity that I've ever heard. He says this, well, here's the deal. If you want unity, then pray for humility. That is what brings love center stage. If you've ever been a part of church life and you're around church people, you know that we like to, as I said earlier, decide who's in and who's out. And it feels like when Jesus came on the scene that most of the Jewish culture was centered around, and this is true for our culture today too, just you know, move the, the calendar to modern day. Most of the religious culture was centered around people who had drawn lines about who's in and who's out and where do they belong and who's, who's sanctified and who's not and who's a sinner and all of these lines had been drawn. And so Jesus comes in, it feels like he arrived and he had in his hands a big eraser and he just started erasing all those lines. And he said, no, you're with me. I know, I know, they've shut you out, you're with me. You belong, you belong. Did you not understand God's love is, is not for the elite or the religious or the appropriate, it's for you too, it's for all of us. You belong. 
this week you're going to be in a conversation with somebody and your temptation is going to be to ask a clarifying question so that you can sort of pin them down on what they think or what they believe or who they are or who they hang with. That's going to be the temptation. But if you're going to be an answer to the prayer that Jesus prayed, then you're not going to try to draw a line that shows, well, I think this and you think that. That's who you voted for. I'm not sure we can even hang out. That's what you think religiously or theologically or that this is what you believe about, you know, fill in the blank. The last three years have been very interesting, right? To be an answer to the prayer of Jesus, you're going to find a way to draw a circle that includes you and them. Oh, you believe in a God too? Me too. Oh, you're a person? Me too. Your family's been through cancer? Mine too. Your kid won't speak to you? Mine either. You'll find a way to find such perfect unity by the time they get to know your ideology or your, you know, something else that would otherwise separate you, they'll be so amazed that you didn't place those first, that you place love, that they will actually believe that God exists. And they might even believe that God loves them the way you did. They just might believe that. And that is the only thing that will transform a heart. So the people that will Uh, help us serve communion today. They can make their way back and grab the elements because when Jesus describes himself, he does so with a loaf of bread. And he holds it up in front of his disciples. And when he holds the bread, he says, this is my, what? This is my body. Now, when Paul describes the church in the New Testament, he describes the group of people that comprise those who believe as the body of Christ. And he does so because what is true physically is also true theologically. And what is true that we can see is also invisible among us, that love must take center stage, that it must be ahead and above all things that we value, and that this love isn't an emotional, uh, wispy, It comes and it goes feeling. It is an agape, tangible, I place you ahead of me kind of love. And so with his disciples, Jesus held it up and said, this is my body. And he tore it and he said, this body is broken for you. And they took it and they ate it. And then he held up a cup. And in this cup was the fruit of the vine part of their dinner as he held this cup up he said this is my blood and it is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins it is because of this unconditional love represented by these emblems physically but spiritually represented by the calling you've received the convictions that you hold the love that you've experienced the forgiveness when you lay down your sins at the cross. All of this allows you to love others the same way God loves you. Drawing circles, not lines. Including, not excluding. This 
is who God is. It is the gifts of God for the people of God. And so, Lord, now as we receive these emblems and these elements, we ask that we would reflect on the depth of your love for us and the prayer that Jesus prayed. Today, Lord, this is on our minds, that Jesus prayed that we would be one. And there is a world among us and around us that is absolutely convinced that division is necessary, that it is even a holy pursuit. But Jesus had something different to say about that. He prayed for such perfect unity that the world would be amazed at connection, relationships, mercy, and love. And that they would know that we in this place and online would know that God's love for us is more than we could ever ask or dream or imagine. So Lord, meet us in this place as we reflect on these truths. And may we love that way. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. And we say together, amen. So over the next few minutes, there are three stations for communion, my right and left and one in the back over here. Online, take your time as well and you can get up at your leisure and make your way to one of these places and you'll be reminded by some of the people that make up your church body that this body has been broken for you and this blood has been poured out for you. So we'll take communion as you feel prepared.